So finally, uh, this guy, he had on a red jacket with medals and all this kind of stuff, and he looked at me and said, well, Mr. Leachman, tell us about your endeavors. I go, you guys know what I do. I thought my friend who asked me to go there had given me a big intro with him. And I started talking to them about 15 minutes about what Jesus Christ was doing around the world and doing in Washington and doing in my life, you know. And they all just sat there like stone dogs just looking at me. And finally I realized, I said, I'm in the wrong group, right? And they go, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. Today Richard's guest is Jerry Leachman of Leachman Ministries. And now our guest, Jerry Leachman. Hey, good morning, men. Uh, I, I don't travel as much as I used to. I've had a couple of heart attacks and surgery and all that stuff, but I always come to Alabama because this is home. I love Alabama. I love you boys. I love my homeboys. And I also think Alabama is one of the last hopes for America and our country. I'm not kidding about that. And a lot of it's because of you men. Uh, I'm going to talk to you like men today. Uh, my job is to kind of light you up and then send you out the tunnel and get you on the field. If any of you are on the sideline, I hope you'll run out the tunnel today and be on the field, be a player, be a winner. And speaking of that, I have two of my former teammates from Alabama that came here. Uh, I'm really honored and surprised. One is Jack White, who started his last game to Alabama. Was, he started on the great Alabama team that got completely smoked by Nebraska in the bowl game. Jack, would you stand up? Congratulations. Congratulations for getting your butt whipped and you ended up a normal person. Lanny Norris from Russellville, Alabama, started at free safety several years for Alabama and ended up, I think, the uh, State Farm agent for 40, 42 years. That's consistent, but uh, his, his greatest lick in his career was against our own quarterback, Scott Hunter, in practice. He knocked him out, and we all enjoyed seeing that quite a bit. <laughs> Lanny, would you please stand up? <clears throat> and Jack went on to coach at Clemson. Who was the head coach you were under there? Ford. Danny, Ford. Danny Ford, another Alabama alumni. So. But our identity now is as brothers in, in Christ, but it is good to see old friends, isn't it? And the thing is, we all kind of came to Christ during those years at Alabama. Now, you know, I, uh, I'm having a problem. I'm actually 74. Richard put one more on there. I'll have to kick your butt when this is over, Richard. Uh, you know, and it's that transition, like I, f I still feel young, I'm funny, I'm fun to be with. I, I've, I still feel like I'm an airborne ranger and all of that. Uh, my body doesn't know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. And uh, I got myself in a mess the other day because I still think of myself like that because that's who I was most of my life. I was one of the strongest guys in the room. And uh, we were at a rodeo dance out in Colorado, we live in rural Colorado, there's just cowboys, they're still here, and uh, <clears throat> ranchers. And uh, it was a Kentucky Derby party, 
and all the women wear big hats and they rent a big screen. And then we have a saddle club by the rodeo grounds. And that's where it is. It's a dance and you watch the Kentucky Derby. Well, some wayward cowboy comes up to me and said, Kay, are you married to that woman over there? That's, that'd be smoking hot Holly, my wife. She's still smoking hot. Uh, I said, yeah, he said, could I dance with her? I said, do you know her? Do you know me? He said, no. All right, I'm kind of streetwise. <laughs> if he doesn't know her, he doesn't know me, and he wants to dance with her, then I know what he, why he wants to dance with her. There's something else he's interested in. You won't believe this came out of my mouth. Look, guys, I got a scar from here to here from open heart surgery. Uh, I'm weaker than I used to be. I'm okay, but, uh, but uh, you know, I had to put in my, my, my tough guy card. I turned that in a while back. This came out of my mouth, and here I am, this minister going around speaking about Jesus, and this comes out of my mouth. I said, you want to dance with my wife? He goes, yeah. I said, when's the last time you had a good butt whipping? <laughs> and then I said, oh, God, I'm in it now. <laughs> you know, I crossed that line. He said, what did you say? Now, this guy's, he's in his prime. He rides bulls and stuff, you know. I just drive my truck. <laughs> And I said, well, I'll give you a coaching tip. This will be your first lesson of the day. If you're going to bluff, you've got to be all in. <laughs> I mean, all in. You can't blink. And all I had was bluff. But that, that manly desire to defend my wife's honor, some weird wayward cowboy wanted to dance with smoking hot, just that ain't going to happen. And I said, uh, hey, uh, he said, what are you, a tough guy? So I knew I was in a bluff, so I'm all in, and I didn't blink. Don't blink if you're bluffing. <laughs> it won't work. I kept my eyes wide open, and I leaned into him. And I could literally see his body language was going back, so I figured, okay. I said, you want a shot at the title? He said, what? I said, you want a shot at the title? And then he leaned back even more, and he said, oh, and he walked out. As soon as that door shut, I just went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> my buddy, retired Marine, was standing and go, what were you thinking, Leachman? <laughs> You're a 70-year-old has-been. I said, I don't know. When he started messing with Holly, that old wolf just came up, man. I said, you had my back. You're a Marine, right? He said, yeah, I was ready. I said, well, what was your plan? He says, I was going to give you 10 seconds. If you could end the fight in 10 seconds, then I was going to say, you only give me 10 seconds? He said, yeah, because you'd be done after 10 seconds. <laughs> Holly's getting older, too, and this is going to mess me up because women know where everything is. She can be on a trip speaking at a conference, and I can't find the mayonnaise. And I call her, open the refrigerator door, look down, second shelf, and it's right there. They know stuff. She finds my wallet my keys, my, my medicine that keeps me alive for my heart. I can't remember to take it. And uh, she, I said to her the other day, I, said, I was thinking about a friend of ours. I said, you know, I can't remember her name. Then Holly says to me, well, tell me who she is, and then I'll tell you her name. I go, Holly, that doesn't make any sense. Do you just hear what you said? Tell me who she is, and then you'll tell me her name. I said, you can't lose your mind, or I'm, I'm, I'm done. Yeah, the other thing that I've noticed about myself as I get a little older, this, my, this uh, Thanksgiving, 
you know, when, you, when your grandkids get older, you kind of have to negotiate with other grandparents on Christmas and Thanksgiving, and you kind of alternate. So our Thanksgiving, our rotation, we had them for Christmas, and they come out to our place in Colorado. So we had nothing going on Thanksgiving. I said, you know what I want to do? I want to go home to Montgomery, Alabama. And I want to look up everybody we can round up that played on our ball club at Lanier High School in Montgomery. And I want to have, rent a nice meeting room in a nice restaurant. And I want to have them all come there and I want to tell them how much I appreciate them. I didn't have a dad, I had nothing. I had a working mom and she worked all, all the time and then she was exhausted when she was home. And uh, I was just thinking, you know, when you get old, you get, uh, sit in quiet repose, you, you think a lot about your, your days of your youth. And I grew up here in Alabama and Montgomery. And uh, it just dawned on me, those guys weren't just my friends, they were my brothers. I loved them. Their families took me in, had me for dinner. I even went on vacation sometimes with their families. And I thought they were my family. They were my brothers. But at that age, I would never say I love you to a man, ever. You identify with that? Well, I'm getting older, you may identify. I tell everybody I love them now. I don't know at what age that button switches on, but mine is on. I gotta tell you, I was talking to my plumber recently about when he was gonna come. And we agreed on Tuesday, when we got off the phone, he said, all right, Leachman, see you next Tuesday. I said, great, love you, man, and I hung up. <laughs> I looked at Holly, she said, did you just tell our plumber you loved him? I said, I gotta call him back. When he picked up the phone, I heard him just cracking up. His wife was cracking up in the background. I'm like, hey, Mike, it's Jerry. He goes, I know it. He, he couldn't stop laughing. I said, you, you know I'm happily married, right? He goes, I got you, and he hung up. I, uh, I've had some crazy experiences. One of my mottos has always been, if you don't care where you are, you're never lost. And I've had done such crazy things in, in ministry. You know, I had to have a personality like that. Uh, Richard actually organizes stuff, and you know, and so I'm the other end. We complement each other. Uh, I helped him with his first book, True Measure of a Man. He sent it to me. He said, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, this, that, and the other." And he said, "Okay, you write the forward to it." I said, "Okay, I did." I made a proposal to him. I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, I said, look, here's the deal, Rick. You write the books, and I'll write the forward, and we're going to split it 50-50. <laughs> he has never gotten back to me on that, ever. I've kind of given it up. I don't care, Richard. You just go ahead and take all the money. Way to go, buddy. He actually doesn't get any money for those things. The Lord does. But... Uh, <clears throat> We worked with the presidential prayer breakfast for a lot of years in Washington. And uh, <clears throat> this one guy that kind of headed it up uh, said to me, he said, you know, you're, you're really not afraid of people. You, you uh, <clears throat> look, after being in the NFL 14 years and playing at Alabama, you know, sometimes people try to bully me around. I said, look, dude, I've been in smaller rooms with guys a lot bigger than you. If they get in and intimidate me, you, you don't have a shot. 
And I said, well, thank you. He said, well, I want you to, to go down to the Cosmos Club in Washington. And uh, there's a group that meets there on Tuesday and they're just really flat. They're not fired up. They need some life. They need some fire. You fire people up. Would you go down there and meet with them on Tuesday? I said, okay. Let me tell you what the Cosmos Club is. I had no idea. It's a club on Massachusetts Avenue that looks like a, 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 an embassy with gilded everything. You know, I mean, it looks like something out of the Middle Ages. A king would live there. Uh, the club limits memberships to people it considers distinguished in science, art, public service, professional work. Its website boasts historic prom prominent members, Herbert Hoover, William Taft, Woodrow Wilson, 55 Presidential Medal of Freedom recipients are members of the Cosmos Club. 61 Pulitzer Prize winners are members of the Cosmos Club. And there are 36 Nobel Prize winner member of the Cosmos Club. Now, you gotta remember, I made a C in chemistry at Lanier High School. Didn't even know why. They said, you made a C. I go, all right. You made an F. Well, that's too bad. You made an A. No kidding. I mean, I had no idea. No idea about chemistry. Well, I didn't know what the Cosmos Club was. Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. So I go down, and there's a butler, you know, with top hat and all, the doorman. I said, hey, I, I'm here to meet with that Tuesday group. Where are they? He goes, oh, they're, they're around that corner by that marble fountain, sir. Calling me sir. So I go up to them and they're already seated. I'm, I'm about 10 minutes late to their meeting. And I go, hey boys, boys, how you doing? And sat down. <clears throat> looking back, they were kind of quiet looking at me like that. But in a place like DC where there could be important people, if you walk around with a lot of confidence, something, they'll treat you nice at first because they don't know who you are and you could be somebody. And I'm just sitting there grinning like a hound dog to all these guys. And I'm using my southern, how y'all doing? And uh, probably the first time they heard that word. And so, uh, <clears throat> so finally, uh, this guy, he had on a red jacket with medals and all this kind of stuff. And he looked at me and said, well, Mr. Leachman, tell us about your endeavors. I go, you guys know what I do. I thought my friend who asked me to go there had given me a big intro with him. And I started talking to them about 15 minutes about what Jesus Christ was doing around the world and doing in Washington and doing in my life, you know. And they all just sat there like stone dogs just looking at me. And finally I realized, I said, I'm in the wrong group, right? And they go, yeah. <laughs> they, they said, why don't you just at least stay and have breakfast? And so I said, no, I got to go. I got another. And I, I went out in my car and go, oh, my gosh. That is humiliating. I just preach to these total strangers in a place I don't even know what it is. And uh, so then, uh, <clears throat> and then I thought, I hope that doesn't get back to my boss who asked me to come down here. About four days later, you remember those wall phones you used to have in the kitchen? My wall phone rings and I pick up and go, hello? And this very somber, articulate voice says, is this Jerry Leachman? And I said, yes, sir. He said, do you remember the man in the red jacket with the medals at the head of the table? I said, yes, sir. Thank you for your service. He said, no, no, 
those are academic medals. <laughs> and I'm like, academic medals? What the crap is that? You know? <laughs> academic medal. They didn't give me one. They didn't have any C in chemistry medals. <laughs> so, so I said, oh my gosh. And that shame kind of, you know, of making a fool out of myself started floating up to the top. And he said, Jerry, I just want you to know, our group was flat and lack life, and you came in there. We had no idea what you're talking about, but you were left. We were fired up, and we didn't even know why. And I just wanted to tell you, I have been commissioned by the men to call you and let you know we took a vote. You're in the group. <laughs> I met with those guys two years. I just sat there the whole time. I didn't know what anybody was saying. And then they say, okay, you're up. You got 12 minutes. Said, All right, you know. I guess if I do write a book, I'll have a chapter in there on accidental evangelism because I don't normally have a detailed plan. I just kind of run to daylight. Well, then, these, as the famous quote in literature says, these are the times that try men's souls. I was out in Los Angeles recently, spoke four times out there. I've been down in Florida speaking, been all over speaking. I've never traveled so much as I had did in 2023, just domestically speaking to men. And the temperature is pretty much the same. People are confused. They're fearful. Some are to the point where they're anxious, seeing this insane, depraved stuff going on in our country. Depraved is a biblical term when a culture gets to the point where they don't know right from wrong, up, down, left, right. They can't make any, any sensible decisions. They're depraved. We are seeing that in our country, without a doubt. There's language I'll use today that if I were to come in here and use that language 10 years ago, you go, you're just some drunk Pentecostal from Louisiana. We don't want to hear from you. What is the language? Demonic. <coughs> Kingdom of God. I recently met with some guys I knew before they were anything. They're involved in our Senate and our Congress, and they're, they're very high up. And they're brothers in Christ. I met with them not too long ago, and I said, I'd like to tell you what I'm seeing biblically, which is my paradigm, the Word of God. Are you all using this language, at least among yourselves, up in the Senate and in the House? They said, what is it? I said, demonic. This isn't liberal against conservative at this point. This is not Republican against a Democrat at this point. This is the doctrine of demons juxtaposed to the kingdom of God. And this guy looked at me just in surprise, taken aback. He said, yes, that's the way we're seeing a lot of this stuff. Let me take a quick survey. So far, what I've said, does anybody here agree with me? That it's getting to that? Look at that, everybody. I want to read to you something out of the Bible. 
Like I always say, I love the Bible. It sheds so much light on all the commentaries floating around out there. If you want to know the point our country's gotten to, now look, I'm not going to give you one of these scare the crap out of you talks and send you out here in fear. The trait of every good leader, and God expects all you men to be leaders, is to assess what reality is, to assess what liabilities you have and what assets you have, and then you form a coalition and then you go to war. It's not about fear, it's about being men who aren't afraid to look down in the future, to look it right in the face and be brave. One of my missions here today, and I have about 30 minutes to accomplishment, is to send you out of here brave, willing to go through hell if you have to. If you don't know if you're a Christian, you better sign up real quick while you can. You better be on the right team. You can't get this part wrong. This is in Judges chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his land, and the people served the Lord. And all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. Joshua was one of the very few men in Scripture that was never rebuked. Daniel was never rebuked that we know of. Joseph in the Old Testament was never rebuked that we know of. He died at the age of 110 years old and they buried him with the bounds of his inheritance in the hill country. All that generation were also gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that God has done. I was interviewed by a journalist in Moscow, and he asked me, it's interesting, his perspective watching the United States, he said, at what point did the United States begin its decline? He viewed us as culturally in decline. And I said, 1963. That's when they took prayer out of schools. You remove God from the formula, this is what you get. A generation of people that don't, they'll either say they're atheist, agnostic, or they don't really believe anything. Well, what do you think a culture is going to be like like that? It's going to be open to hell. People ask me, uh, at my age, all our mentors are in heaven now, so now I'm getting called from guys that have heard me or I've taught around the country, and phone rings off the hook in Colorado. They go, are we in the last days? What's going on? What do you see? What do you think? What's coming? And I say, hell's coming. And part of it's already, already here. I mean, when you live in a country where they don't even know the difference between a boy and a girl, that's a depraved mind. That's, that's way beyond just being silly and stupid. It's depravity. And it's a doctrine of a demon. 
Did you notice this? When Joshua was alive and he was the boss, they taught their young people about God and what God has done. How long did it take it to turn around? One generation. It said after that there came another generation and they didn't know God and they didn't know a thing about God. One generation. Listen to the rest of this and this will be a description of what I see in our country. Traveling around, taking the temperature of men, listening to what they're thinking and it's all the same no matter what part of the United States I go to. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served Baals, and they forsook the Lord. And the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the prophets, of the people, who were round about them, and they bowed down to false gods. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they forsook the Lord and served Baals. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into power of their enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Wherever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord has warned, and as the Lord has sworn to them, and they were in sore straits. I went to the trouble to look up Baals. What is that? What were they worshiping? Ritualistic Baal worship, in summary, looked like this. Adults would gather around the altar of Baal. This is demonic, a demonic entity. Infants would then be burned alive as sacrificial offering to the deity. Well, does that remind you of anything in our country? Do you know what I'm talking about? Abortion. Infants would then be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to the deity. Amid amid horrific screams, and the stench of charred human flesh, congregants, men and women alike, would then engage in bisexual orgies. It's here. There again. This isn't one of these America's going to hell talks. Go have a nice day. What are we to do? What men are we to be at a time such as this? When Jesus Christ taught his disciples, he went after only two things. Their prayer life and their character. He never taught them to preach. He never taught them how to organize a church and run it. He never taught them how to lead worship. He never taught them how to make a pitch for money. He didn't teach them any of that. Not that those things aren't necessary. But the core teachings, he went after their prayer life and their character. Now let me talk about the prayer life first. You know, most people, most guys I've interviewed throughout the years, I'd say, 
of all the aspect of your Christian life, what are you the most disappointed in? I'd say 90% have said, well, my prayer life. It's never really been what I, I wanted it to be. Now, number one, here's what will get you started. I'm going to coach you up, and just in a few minutes, I'm going to show you how you can have a prayer life, and your only answer is I'm going to do it or I'm not. But prayer is our bomb. Prayer literally is our number one weapon. And yet to us, prayer is kind of an add-on. You know, historians that take a good look at chronology in the Testament say that Jesus basically prayed all the time and he did his teaching and his miracles in between prayer times. It wasn't the other way around. Now, <clears throat> there's a, a movie and, uh, and this book, uh, what was the name of that movie? It was about, this is called A Battle Plan for Prayer. And uh, it was about people making prayer closets. And if you want to start your prayer life, if you're at nowhere, here's your book. Battle Plan for Prayer. Basic Training. Uh, this is the best book that's so easy to read to whatever level you are in your Christian faith. I want to read you something that's absolutely amazing. The power of prayer. The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful of the destruction of evil fortresses. The most powerful weapon against evil is prayer. I'm calling you all in the name of the Lord today. When I speak to you, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to your heart. I would think twice before saying no to the Holy Spirit. I'm calling you before you leave here, you will make a vow to yourself that you will become a man of prayer. If not, you're worthless. I don't want you in my inner circle. You're not going to do anything. The first thing you need to do, and it's not that complicated, is stop being double-minded and stop being ashamed of Jesus. Why would you be ashamed of Jesus in front of some guy that's going to hell anyway? What's he going to do for you? Nothing. And yet we will say a little grace or something if we eat out. Or maybe you have guests in your home and you say something like in your name. What the heck does that mean? Man up and say the name. Say Jesus. Jesus said, if you lift my name up, I'll draw people to myself, but you've got to get him on the scoreboard and be proud of who. I'm proud of Christ. Are you proud of Christ? I am. Now, James 5 says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It was talking about Elisha, and it said he was a man of like passions, and I'm so glad they put that part in the Bible. He was just a guy. We tend to deify these prophets. He was just like me and you, same passions we have. But he prayed, and the rain stopped for three and a half years, and he prayed again, and it started. Go to James 1. What qualifies you to pray powerfully like that? says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. But let that man ask in faith and not be double-minded because a double-minded man's like a wave just tossed. 
to and fro by the sea. You have no stability. You're double-minded. What does it mean to be single-minded? No secrets. Sometimes I'll ask a man, do you have any secrets? He'll go, well, uh, uh, oh, oh, what do you mean by that? I said, y you know exactly what I mean. You just answered my question. You can't have secrets. You can have a private life, but not a secret life. You need to forsake all your secrets. Just give them up. If you want to be able to pray a fervent prayer. You know, I've given up all my secrets. I have a few brothers I confess my secrets to, my sin. I don't have, I don't look at pornography secretly. Do I feel lustful sometimes? Yeah. But the main thing that keeps me from giving into it are my sweet little grandchildren and my children and smoking hot holly. I'm on point. A lot of you guys are on point for your families. You need to get off your butt and become an airborne ranger. Become a man of prayer, a powerful man. I've given up my secrets so I can pray powerful prayers for my family. I'm on point. I'm the commander. Winners take responsibility, losers blame others. You can fake caring, but you can't fake showing up. I'm gonna show up for my family. Am I boasting to you? No, this ain't a boastimony, it's a testimony. I'm asking you boys to join up or do what? Just be a little weakling with a bunch of filthy secrets in your life. If you're struggling with this, right now in your heart, ask, say, Holy Spirit, give me the strength to bust through. Make this my day to finally get it. Because with what's coming down the tracks, not just in our country, but worldwide, you're going to get rolled like dice. You need to be a man of prayer. You need to be in a group. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. If you're not in a group, my guess is you're kind of dull. And I wouldn't want you in my inner circle. You know who's in my inner circle? They're men of prayer and they're men of character. Remember, Christ went after the prayer life and the character. That's it. What are men of character? They're men of convictions. Christianity is just not something you say you believe. Yeah, we are entreated to confess that we believe it. It's someone you become. It becomes who you are. The Bible says if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creature. What kind of man are you? Now this is all you one-on-one -on -one with the Lord and the Holy Spirit right here, right where you sit. What kind of man are you? Now you can go to a church that preaches the word, but they never really challenge you. They did a survey on why a lot of men don't like church. They said they never challenge us to do anything great. I'm challenging you to be airborne rangers and get on point. For Birmingham, Alabama, the United States, the world. I'm not calling you to be average. I'm calling you to die to yourself. To, today, everybody in here, 
The only way you can move forward without fear is die to yourself. Jesus said it. If you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you give it away, you'll keep it. I think I tell you every time I'm here about the Navy SEALs I've ministered to when I was in Washington. I ask them if you're about to go on an impossible mission, but it has to be done. There's no way around it. A lot of innocent people's lives are at stake. How do you prepare for a mission like that? You know what they said? We meditate. Oh, meditation. That's Eastern religion. Dude, Christianity's an Eastern religion. Jesus looked more like a Muslim than he did us. And the Bible's full of verses about meditation. Psalm 23, Lord, in his word, he doth meditate day and night. This seal said we meditate until we consider ourselves dead already. We've already given our life for this mission. That's part of the deal. We already make peace with the fact that we may not come back and we're willing to die if that's what it takes. And a paradox kicks in. Now get this, this is genius, but it's right out of the Bible. It's what Jesus taught. He said, when you are a dead man walking, we consider ourselves dead men walking, and you go into battle, you have no fear. Why? You've already died. I did die. I have very little fear. Can you smell that fear on coming out of me? Do I look afraid of you? No. Why? I'm a dead man walking. You're boasting. No, I'm not. I know who I am and I know who my God is. I speak from conviction. I'm a dead man walking. You know I am. Are you? Why not? Here's the deal. When you go into battle and you're a dead man walking, you make no fear-based decisions. None. None. Why? Because you've already died. And when you don't make fear-based decisions, they're quick. They're decisive. They're powerful. Boom, 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 boom. You don't have to debate, oh, no, no. If you haven't died to yourself, you make all fear-based decisions. How does that feel at the prospects of you leaving here and going through the rest of your life walking around feigning bravery rather than actually be brave and most of your decisions are just fearful decisions because you're just trying to save your own butt. You would never be in my core group. I play golf with you, I have fun with you. I'm not dependent on you. You ain't gonna do anything. If you want me to take a step further, you're a loser. There are winners and losers in the kingdom of God. Every one of you could choose to be a winner. Walk out of here, dead man, walk out of here brave. I just long to be brave. I don't want to be a coward. Am I resonating with anybody? Because it's freedom. It's freedom to be brave. What's it cost? My life. I got to give it to something. One of my mentors was a 
crazy guy named Howard Borland. And he used to say, well, we're all fools. Everybody's some fool. I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? I bought into that. Jesus Christ went after their prayer life. Listen to this. Trench warfare was used only sparingly in military craft throughout most of the modern history. By the time the American Civil War in the 1860s, some of the Union and Confederate generals began employing it as a defensive strategy. The increased range and velocity of firearms had reached a high enough level that armies could no longer just afford to merely just march at one another and face off in columns. So they went to trench warfare. In the heavy rapid firing machine guns of World War I, it left no other option. Digging in and climbing out into the trenches became the standard method of survival. Throughout the battlefields, along the Western Front in Europe, a series of networking foxholes began to emerge on either side of the fighting. From 1914 to 1918, Allied forces dug in against the armies of Germany and the Central Powers, and the war slogged on with no sight in the end. The strength of the trenches was protection, but their benefit came at the expense of mobility, when advancing troops would try to make a run for their opponent, the barbed wire barricades, fortified walls, and machine guns impossible to penetrate. Long arching shots were about the best they could do with mortars. Any attempt at gaining the element of surprise seemed nearly impossible. There was almost no defeating the enemy under those conditions. Just endless fighting until the tank. Great Britain under Winston Churchill, developed the first military tank in history by engineering an armored car onto the chassis of a farm tractor. Almost like a ship on land, the combination of steel and off-road capability, it turned the nature of ground fighting and almost purely defensive to pure offense. Eventually, it turned the whole tide of the war the prospect of being able to move actively, thunderously, towards the enemy while being protected during the right, spell the end of merely digging in, hoping for the best. Prayer is our armored tank. Prayer is our armored tank. You know, the movie of Dunkirk really didn't get it right. If you saw that movie, <clears throat> it was in 1941. The war would have ended quickly. Hitler already had plans to invade America. Why? Because where were all our troops? Over there. It would have been boom, boom. War's over. We're all speaking German. Three to 400,000 of the British troops are trapped, trapped on the beach in Dunkirk. The Panzer divisions were all along the ridge, would have been like in 40 minutes, they could have just killed them all. Not even a big deal. Winston Churchill saw it was hopeless. The situation we're in in our country is hopeless apart from the intervention of God. 
Now, he may not intervene in behalf of our country if it doesn't repent, but he can intervene in your life and my life. We're the remnant. We're on the beach. This is Dunkirk. Here's what the movie didn't tell you. They knew it was hopeless. I'm not kidding you. It would have just, boom, boom, they're dead. That easy with these panzers. German tanks. Winston Churchill called all of England to pray back when England still prayed. Every cathedral, every little country Paris, they started praying for their boys. Hitler ordered the panzer divisions to stand down for three days. His generals were losing their mind. Historians have no explanation for it. I do. They were praying. And God caused confusion in the enemy ranks. You see this again and again in a lot of battles in the Bible. As hopeless as it is, God can turn it around anytime he wants. Those tanks were ordered just to sit there. And during those three days, guess what? Every little fishing boat, every little schooner, every anything, rowboats, they went and they got those boys off the beach because of the prayers of England. That's how it works. I want to close with one of the greatest prayers in the history of the Bible. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Three armies were coming against Judah, and Judah didn't even have an army then. It was hopeless. The intel guys come to King Jehoshaphat and said, there's three armies down the road, and they're coming after us, and we've de demilitarized now. They'd already taken the land. And Jehoshaphat calls all the people, even the little children, to the temple. They're about to get slaughtered. And he prays one of the epic prayers in the Bible. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem and in the house of the Lord and before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, art thou not the God in heaven? Dost thou not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In thy hand... You have power and might so that no one's able to withstand against you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people and give it to, to us as descendants of Abraham, your friend? They've dwelt in it and have built it a sanctuary for your name. If evil comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we're going to stand before this temple. We're not going anywhere. We're going to stand in front of God's house. And we'll cry to you in our affliction, and you'll hear us, and you'll save us. Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, they're coming. And you, we could have taken them out, and you told us to give them a pass way back when. And now they reward us by coming to drive us out of our city. Oh, our God, wilt thou not execute judgment upon them? We're powerless against this great multitude that is coming. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's my favorite prayer in Scripture. How many of us get to moments in our life where we don't have a plan? 
even your personal affairs, somebody's ill in your family. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're not going anywhere. Here's a last coaching point. When Jehoshaphat heard this bad news about a catastrophe coming, his, his default mode, it said he feared. He heard the news and he just filled up with fear immediately. But he had a deliberate mode. He was a disciplined man. This is called spiritual discipline. Rather than to stay in his default mode of fear, he set himself to seek the Lord. That's your deliberate mode. When fear becomes to fill you up, men, don't stay in your default mode. Be disciplined. Go over to your deliberate mode. Samuel did very well when he listened to himself. He, didn't, uh, he did poorly when he listened to himself. He did great when he spoke to himself. Speak to yourself the words of truth. Give your life up unless you want to live a life of fear. Be an elite ranger, not some bum draftee only trying to cover your own, own butt. Don't make fear-based decisions, but I'm going to tell you for the fifth time, the only way not to be that way is to give your life up, not become religious. What you say you believe isn't necessarily what you believe. What you do, that's what you believe. Now I'm going to close, and then Richard's going to come up here. I also want to exhort you to get Richard's new book, Reflections on the Existence of God in a World of Atheism. This is the best book on this I've ever read. I think it's the best book he's ever written. I guess uh, maybe y'all have them in the back. I don't know. Get that. Get the battle plan of prayer. Time's up. Who is this King of glory, mighty in battle? Who is this King of glory? Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Can I get an amen? amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.